0: I'm a huge fan of the uh, NFL draft man, I love the draft it's just uh, it's it's just the neatest thing to watch these athletes, um, many of whom they're really in many ways their whole life has been focused on the opportunity that's before them as they come to draft day draft night and the, you know there's the green room that's the NFL has set up where all these top prospects are in there and you know, they're waiting with their families for their name to be called and all of this. So I have that image in my mind, and then I was looking at the headlines or, or that were in one of the newspapers here in our state, and these were the terms that were used in, in this particular headline. The hope of the city. Finally, the one has come. And they were talking about the first draft choice, okay? They were talking about, they were talking about the Panthers' first draft choice as, as, as their, their new quarterback. Really? Bryce Young is the hope of the city? Really? Now, you know, now there were some pictures of some, some Panthers fans with tears streaming down their faces like they were just in ecstasy. I mean, the glory had finally fallen on the Queen City, you know. So I just say all that, kind of a, it's just amazing you know we get to meet some of these guys not really for the first time because oh my word they've been talked about and prognosticated now for months or years leading up to who's going to be first in the draft but we get to meet some of those guys for the first time so take everything that you you know or you've seen about the NFL draft and set it aside because in some ways, it's, it's like a negative illustration. It's got nothing to do really in many ways with what we see happening today with Saul. Because Saul's not looking for anything except donkeys, okay? He's out looking for his daddy's donkeys. He leaves home just doing what a farm boy should, which is doing what his dad tells him to do to go find their lost livestock. He leaves home a farm boy that's gone to look for donkeys and he comes home king of Israel. I mean, he had no clue that any of this was going to take place. But here's what I, what's important for us as we look really at all of Scripture, but especially at a passage like today. We're reminded of what we saw last week. This is a foundational life truth, scriptural truth. God is king. Amen? Amen. God is king. The psalmist says in Psalm 10, the Lord is king forever and ever. I read from Daniel for that purpose, to remind us that his dominion is an unending dominion. He is the eternal king. That's a foundational scriptural truth. God is the sovereign ruler, and as Psalm 2 tells us, he has chosen the king who will rule beside him. He has chosen his king, it is his son. And so Jesus is the king. Another foundational truth that goes along with that is that God has determined that under his sovereign rule and reign as king, he has placed human governments. Israel is in between times. By that I mean they're in between the time that they were called into existence and they're in between the time that their promised Messiah will come and establish God's eternal rule and reign. And in that in-between time, which they were and we are, God has seen fit to establish human governments to serve under him, ideally in submission to him as his deputies, if you will, or his vice regents. That was dominion, that was a position of responsibility that God gave to Adam. Adam shirked that responsibility. He chose to go his own way, make his own decisions rather than trusting in the God who created him. And so we have the mess that we have today with human governments, human leaders. We have the mess that we have today, and yet God's purposes still stand. They have not been set aside, okay? That's what we're going to see unfold all the way through this. And so this first search for Israel's king does not begin with what you see on TV taking place in the UK. It's very mundane. It's very regular, okay? It's just life on the farm. That's what we see unfolding before us. And what we see happening here is this man named Saul, whose name actually means, it's a derivative of the verb to ask for. (laughs) Israel asked for, no, I'm sorry, they demanded a king. And so they get what they ask for in Saul. Saul. And what we see taking place here is Saul just being introduced to us in these first few chapters, and what stands out first is his physical appearance. The guy's a hunk. But what we also see in his conduct, as we see him begin to make some decisions, we see him begin to open, God just kind of opens the door so we can crack open that door and begin to see some cracks, if you will, some flaws in Saul's character. And those those flaws that we see in his character are going to be very consequential. They're going to end up being catastrophic. And so, let's see what we can learn from Saul. And by the way, he's not referred to by God or by Samuel as the king. He's referred to as the prince. There's a difference, okay? We'll see that. So, Pick up your Bible and let's look in Psalm uh, in uh, 1 Samuel, starting in verse chapter, in, in chapter 9. In this first section here that really goes through the, the whole part of chapter 9. If you look at your outline, you have the pick, okay? You have the problem, and you have a private anointing that takes place here. And overriding all of this or underneath all of it, whatever vision gives you a better understanding is the providence of God, the sovereign movement of God. He's he's overseeing all of it. So look at the first two verses. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. This sounds like first draft choice. All right, this is the pick, okay? This is the pick. And as we see this pick, what we find out first is something about, well, what about his family? What about his pedigree? And we're given that. We're given a pretty good analysis here of of this man. He comes from a family of resources, all right? His dad is a wealthy farmer, it tells us that, a man of wealth. It also tells us something about the relationships within his family and really kind of the legacy that's there. And here's a a preview, if you will. If If you'll study a little bit in the Bible about the tribe of Benjamin, you'll see that this family tree... Man, it has some bad fruit. It has some bad fruit. You know, up in the mountains where I grew up, if, if you heard somebody say, well, he ain't no count, just look at his daddy. Well, the idea was you can tell something about the fruit by the tree, and he ain't no count means, well, he ain't no count. <laughs> and so if we look at Saul's family, what we see here is that he came from this family that does not have exactly a shining reputation. The tribe of Benjamin has a reputation of being corrupt, of being inhospitable. They have a corruption of violence. They have a, 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 a reputation of rape. The last time we really saw the family of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, in a prominent place was in Judges chapter 19. When a Levite and his wife, or his concubine, if you will, came into this community in the land of Benjamin, in Gibeah, a city of Benjamin, no one showed them hospitality. It was a foreigner who took them in. And in the middle of the night, men, Benjaminites, came to the door demanding that that man be brought out so they could have sexual relationships with him. And instead, they drugged the wife, the concubine, out and threw her into the hands of these Benjaminites who abused her, raped her, gang raped her, killed her, and left her for dead the next morning. A civil war ensued in the closing chapters of Judges. Almost all of the tribe of Benjamin is wiped out. And then in this crazy picture of. Grace. after the rest of Israel has wiped them out, they say, well, golly, these guys that are left, there's nobody left for them to have wives, and so they go and kidnap wives for them. It's it's a picture of sin in its worst. That's Benjamin. (laughs) That's his pedigree. Hmm, wonder how this is going to turn out. What about the problem? Well, the problem that we have is, well, it appears on the surface to be something that a lot of farmers would recognize as a problem. Some of the livestock has run off. All right? It says in verse 3, the donkeys of Kish were lost. Now, we're not, most of us don't have, even if you have a farm, you don't necessarily have one group of animals. This is like if you're in the service business, you're a one-man operation, and you're a plumber, and your truck with all of your tools, all everything you need to make a livelihood is stolen. And you got nothing to do your work with, nothing to provide for your family with. Imagine that, because that's closer to what Kish is experiencing here. And so he gets Saul up out of his bed early one morning and says, Saul, take Joe with you and go find my donkeys. We need to have them back. And so what comes next is, is they, pass, they just go on this long journey looking for these donkeys... It comes to verse 5, they've been unsuccessful, and Saul says, eh, let's just go back home. Dad's going to be worried about us. Don't worry about those donkeys. So what we see here is a problem that's not just lost donkeys. It goes way beyond that. What seems to be apparent here is some character issues with Saul. He quits before he accomplishes what he's been asked to do. There seems to be a lack of initiative. There seems to be a willingness to say, eh, let's go back to the house. There seems to be at least an unwillingness, if not an inability, to come up with ideas or come up with anything that's going to make this a successful endeavor. And what it turns out is the servant is the one who takes the initiative, Joe, whatever his name is. Joe takes the initiative. I've heard that there's a seer, there's a prophet. Let's go ask him, and he can tell us what's happened with the donkeys. And so that's the idea that comes up. Saul says, well, well, if we go, what are we going to take him? Because it was the custom of the time that if you go to the prophet and ask for something of the prophet, you you take an offering, you take something. So the text talks about that. Formerly, the prophet was called a seer. And the servant says, well, I have money. I'll take care of it. Saul says, that's a good idea. Let's go. So it appears, okay, it appears there may be some issues going on here. They go up into the city, they meet a woman who tells them exactly where the seer is, exactly where Samuel's going to be, all right? And, and what we see happening here, let's pick up the reading. It says down in verse, uh, let's go to 14. So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. So Samuel was there to conduct church, to have a service, to do a sacrifice for the people of the city. And Samuel was coming out toward them just like the woman said he would be. Verse 15, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said to him, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago do not set your mind on them for they've been found. So so here's this encounter between Saul and Samuel and it's interesting what's going to follow here in just a minute is this private anointing not public simply private between Samuel and Saul but leading up to that What stands out here are a couple of things about Samuel himself. And what what stands out first is that Saul is ignorant of Samuel, which I find astonishing. Commentators say, you know, kind of question what is going on with this? Because earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it said, from Israel, all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everybody in Israel knew that God had raised up a prophet in Samuel. Somehow, Saul didn't get the memo. Saul never thought of going to seek out Samuel. The servant did. And when Saul is standing face to face to Samuel, he doesn't know him. He doesn't recognize him. I think that's enlightening. I think that tells us something about Saul, his You know, he's ignorant of what's going on in God's kingdom with God's people, it seems. But there's also this point of God's guidance for Samuel. God gives Samuel specific instructions about a specific time, about a specific person, and everything happens just exactly as God said it would. All right? Over and over and over we see that in Scripture, and we see it here as well. All right? But notice, just read on a little further... Samuel then invites Saul and his servant, this young man, to come up to this this hall, to this banquet that's been prepared. And not only is Saul invited to the banquet, he's given the place of honor. He sits at the head of the table, he gets the choicest cut of meat, everything that would be given to the prominent honor, person getting honor, Saul gets that. This country boy must have been blown away by what's happening. Because up until this point, he still has no clue what's going on. So so Samuel invites him to this dinner. Saul ate with Samuel that day. He gets the choices cut. It's interesting, though, that prior to that, Samuel says something that's kind of mysterious to Saul. You could read over it, but it's significant. It says up in verse 20, I just read the first part of that, your donkeys that were lost, don't set your mind on them, they are found And look at what it says next in verse 20. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? That's a question. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite? I mean, he recognizes that his pedigree doesn't carry that much weight in Israel. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin why have you spoken to me in this way there is some good things about Saul that we will see that the scriptures bring out and there is an element of humility here that is admirable and, and we'll give credit where credit is due there but what is exactly is he saying here all that is desirable in Israel and there's differences of opinion in this but it really boils down to two things on one hand Samuel is saying to Saul What you are about to be anointed and asked to do, all that is desirable in Israel, everything that this, the best that this nation has to offer is at your disposal. All that you need to do what God has called you to do will be provided for you. Others say that all that is desirable in Israel is talking about the desire of the people. What the people in Israel are desiring is a king like Saul and and they'll get that. And there might be an element of both of those there, but it's, it is an interesting comment that's there. And, and Saul, again, just it, he just doesn't understand, and, and rightly so, he doesn't understand why he's even being invited into this, this, uh, this dinner. And so what we see here, though, is, is more than just about Saul or more than just about Samuel. It's about God's heart. Do you see that? Notice what it says there? That... I will, anoint, I will, God is sending Samuel to anoint this, this one who will be prince. And, and God says, he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because of the cry that has come up to me. There's these two words that go together with God sometimes. I see, and because I see, I hear. And it's the exact same idea that God related to Moses when he was about to take his people out of slavery in Egypt. I've seen their oppression. I've heard their cries. God does not give up on his people, church. Never does he give up on his people. On those new covenant people that God has adopted and brought to himself through the blood of Christ, what we just recognized, nothing snatches us out of his hand. Nothing changes his mind about his redeemed. You see that? We need to grasp that even as we see this promise here. So God's going to provide for his people. He's going to provide for his king, the one that he calls out there. But he doesn't call him a king, and he calls him a shepherd. And the word there literally means to be a, a, a prince, an underling, if you will. There's only one king. Only one king. Yes, David will be referred to as the king. But the one that Daniel saw in his vision, the one that Revelation gives us, King Jesus, who says, my kingdom is at hand... And so finally, this last point, all of this is providentially being brought together. It's an amazing thing to see all of this stuff coming together. Later on in the text, we're going to read the sentence that says, all these signs came to pass. Well, look at the next section. What signs is it talking about? Well, it's the signs that come subsequent to what happens in verse 1 of chapter 10. As the night goes by, they have the dinner. They sleep that night. In the morning, as Saul and his servant are getting ready to leave, Samuel pulls him aside and says, Tell your servant to go on up ahead. I will make known to you the word of God. In verse 1 of chapter 10, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. And said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Literally over his inheritance, over his treasured possession over his people. And Saul receives then this word about these three signs that are coming up. So he is privately anointed. The the prophet kisses him, anoints him, just gives him this personal assurance here that he is the one that has been called out To serve under God as a prince, caring for his people. And what his task would be in regard to the enemies of God's people. So these three signs are given. The first one is this sign that's going to take place where there are these two men. Okay? When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelah. And here's what they will say to you. It's the same thing that they've already heard. The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys. And he's anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? So this is what Samuel says will happen. And guess what happens? Well, we don't know exactly because nothing else tells us about what's going to follow from this first sign. We just assume based on everything else that it happened. Just these are not the droids you're looking for. Kind of happens like that, okay? The second sign, three men are going to be going up to God to Bethel. They're going to be going to worship. They're going to sacrifice, and they're going to be carrying the things that they need for the sacrifice. Three loaves of bread, a skin of wine, three young goats. It says they'll greet you, and they'll give you two of the loaves of bread. They'll give you part of what they're taking up for sacrifice, And you'll take it from their hand. So here's this other sign that's given. Again, we're not told exactly what goes down that takes place there. But it's interesting, commentators point out the fact that here again, what is designated to be given to God in sacrifice is used for the well-being of the king to be or the prince to be. Another picture that God is going to take care of the one that he's called out. And so he's given what he needs. Then there's a third sign. This one is more specific, and we're told what happens. Here's what he says. You shall go, or you shall, and, and, and then you, it says you will come to Gibeath Elohim. Literally means hill is what Gibeath means. Elohim is a word for God. You're going to come to the hill of God. And there, there is a garrison of Philistines. What's up with that? Hang on. I think it's significant. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and a sacrifice, peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, it says there in verse 9, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Well, it goes on to tell us that when he got to Gibeah, when he got to the Mount of God, what he saw was exactly what God told him he would see. These men prophesying, these people prophesying, by the way, they're being led by the praise band. It doesn't say that they're the one playing the instruments. It said they're being led by the praise band. And these, these are coming, they're prophesying. And the word there is important because it's, an, it's a key word that we see in the Old Testament. But what's clear, I think, and, and commentators back this up, prophesying here is not the sense of hearing a direct word from God, like Samuel just said, thus says the Lord. That is prophesying. But that's not what this is. Most commentators define this as, as an ecstatic, excited, god-ordained, if you will, celebration. They're just excited about what God seems to have been doing. The spirit, it seems, has, has worked them up into some kind of religious frenzy, if you will. Some people see this very negatively. But Saul, as he is seeing this take place, it says the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. I mean, all of a sudden, Saul's right up in the middle of them. Singing the same songs, doing the same thing. And it's astounding to the people that see it taking place. Again, some would see it negatively, some see it positively. Because it says, what's come over the son of Kis? What's up with this? This is farm boy Saul. Is Saul also among the prophets, they ask? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Again, this this might be positive, it might be negative. (laughs) It might be saying, well, isn't he Kish's son? Or it might be, well, it might not be positive. Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So these signs are given as authenticity, if you will, as assurance. God is so good, is he not? In the Bible, sometimes to give signs when his word ought to just be enough, right? I mean, we understand that asking God for a sign beyond what he's given us in his word is not something we should be doing. That's more sin than it is faith. And yet God in his mercy and his grace gives Saul these signs that just affirm beyond a shadow of a doubt What I just did for you, Saul, in verse 1, when I kissed you and anointed you and gave you a commission, God is absolutely carrying out for you. He's going to do this for you. But there's a problem, all right? So we have these signs, we have the evidence of the Spirit, but then all of a sudden, in verse 14, Saul comes to a high place, comes to the high place, by the way, that is not this high place is not Gilgal, where Samuel had, been, had told Saul to go. Just keep that in your head. He comes to the high place, and he runs into his uncle. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And, and some of this is kind of comical, um, because in that day, the uncle probably lived with Kish, family, family compound. And this uncle's actually in the line to receive as inheritance what might come from Kish should something happen to Saul. He may have a personal interest in what Samuel had told Saul. So the the uncle says, where did you go? Well, I think the uncle knew exactly where he had gone. But Saul answers, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Interesting. I believe, and, and commentators would agree, that... This uncle knew there was something more to this than what Saul was saying. Because Samuel's in the business of not just pointing out lost livestock. Samuel had to have said something more than just, well, your donkeys are okay, go home. And he wants to inquire. In fact, there's a plural, there's a plural behind his question. What what kind of what else did he tell you? Well, Saul said. He told us plainly the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Hmm, interesting there. The matter of the kingdom. I don't remember Samuel mentioning the kingdom, but he did talk about Saul's responsibility of overseeing God's heritage. He did talk about Saul's responsibility to be prince. But the point here is this, there's some secrecy here. Now, is Saul being secret because it was a private anointing and nobody else needs to know about it yet? Maybe. Is Saul being secret about it and not telling him because he's a humble man and he doesn't want too much attention drawn and he just doesn't want to get into this extended conversation with his uncle who who never seems to know when to drop something? You know, you've got family members they just want to go on and on and and Saul says, I don't have time for this. I don't know, maybe that's it. The other thing that may be the case here is it just reflects reluctance. Maybe Saul doesn't want to talk about what he's been told to do because there's not a real desire in his heart to do that. And yet overriding all of this is something that we need to remember as I begin this message that God's kingdom will be accomplished. It is eternal. It is present yet hidden. And in some way, that mystery seems to come off the page here. It's interesting. We are kingdom citizens in an invisible kingdom. I wonder how quick we are to talk about that in public. I wonder if sometimes we're ready and willing to jump into political conversations, but when it comes to talking about gospel things related to the kingdom of God, let's talk about lost donkeys, let's talk about the weather, let's talk about the president just interesting that some of us may have that same issue sometimes. The problems that are here that I just want to point out to you. Again, Saul seems to have a problem taking initiative. He's ready to go home. And I think we see some indications here that he seems to have a problem following directions. Samuel told him, go down to Gilgal and wait there seven days. He did not go down to Gilgal and wait seven days. He went home. He went to the high place. But there's another thing here. In verse 5, it tells us that there's a garrison of Philistines there. And later on, Samuel says, The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. That same term is used throughout the Old Testament of where God pours His Spirit out. He gives power to people temporarily to do what He has called them to do. The same thing happened to Samson. Exact same phrase. So here, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, and it says, do what your hand finds to do there in verse 7. God is with you. That same phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe a command, if you will, to describe someone being told to go to war, go to battle. Go take care of the task that God has given you to do with the sword. There's a garrison of Philistines right there in the middle of town. It's been pointed out to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Samuel says. Do what you see needs to be done. Well, your job, Saul, from now on is to deliver Israel from their enemies. Oh, guess what? There's a garrison of them right there. And you have the Spirit of God, you have the ability, go and do what the Lord has called you to do because God is with you. And it doesn't appear that Saul does that at all. Now, he will later on, but he doesn't do it then. And he doesn't go and do what Samuel told him to do. There's some character issues here that are going to come to fore later on. Now, let's look at the end of this. After he sees all these signs, after the Spirit of God comes on him, after he has this conversation with his uncle, Samuel called the people together in verse 17 at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, that's what a prophet does. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today... You have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So I'll I'll pick that up in just a second. So here's what goes down. Saul has had all of this, if you will, private interaction with Samuel. He's had this private affirmation, this private call, this private anointing, and now it's all going public. Now it's all going to be done in front of all of Israel. And so first off here, there is a reminder. It's not in your sermon notes. I didn't put it there, but I should have. There's this reminder And I think this is a clear reminder to the people of Israel that know anything about their past history. I think it may be a reminder even to Saul of something that he learned in history class. Basically what this is is a come to Jesus meeting at Mizpah. Samuel, this is calling the people of Israel back to Mizpah, which by the way, if you remember, Mizpah was the place back in chapter 7 where the people assembled and as they prayed and cried out to God, God worked on their behalf and defeated the Philistines. Mizpah is a place of spiritual significance. Now they're being called back there again. But there's another story in the Old Testament of the people of Israel being brought before God and being told to line up by tribe, and by lot, if you will, are being called out tribe by tribe, family by family, man by man. And that happened with a guy named Achan. That happened in the Old Testament when Israel was walking in sin and rebellion against God, not wholeheartedly by everybody, but at least by one family and one tribe. And what was happening there was as God called those people out in Israel and said, you have sinned against me, you have rejected me in one sense. In this case, they're being called out again, tribe by tribe, family by family for a roll call. And I think some people there must have gone, oh no, what is about to happen? Because not only have they been reminded of what happened in the past when they sinned, Samuel has been straight in their face and said, you have rejected your God who brought you out of Egypt, who's been faithful to you, who's met every need you have, and you have said no to him, we want a king like the nations. Therefore, line up. I had a sixth grade teacher who would say that. And he carried a paddle the size of a boat oar. And he used that bad boy. So when he said, line up, you knew you were in trouble. Samuel says, line up. And I don't think they know exactly what's about to go down. Even all the way down to Saul's family. So there's a roll call. Tribe by tribe. Family by family. And then there is a revealing He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And it says there in verse 21, And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Israel is on the clock. Israel's draft choice is Saul. Let's go to the green room and see Saul react. Oh, but wait. Where's the draft choice? Where is he? Like, here, Saul. Stone silence. Here's Saul. Again. Nowhere. I got this picture of Shrek trying to hide in a garbage can. That's just what came to mind. Big. Where are you going to hide a giant? I mean, Saul's a shoulder higher than anybody. Where's he going to hide? Well, they found him in the baggage. This revealing was a little, it it just didn't turn out, I think, the way the organizers thought it would. When they sought him, he could not be found. So, wait a minute, maybe we made a mistake. Verse 22, they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? (laughs) So God showed him where he was at. You can't play hide and seek with the Lord, by the way. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And when they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Verse 24, I like this. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? I might hear a little bit of sarcasm in there. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, my sarcastic self. This is him. We had to dig him out, we had to drag him out. But this is him. Saul, who means ask for, you ask for, you get Saul. Here he is. But Samuel is clear to make this point. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? People, you can make bad choices, you can decide to go the wrong direction. You can reject me, God is saying, but I am still sovereign. I am still in control. I am still going to accomplish and fulfill my purposes. This guy, this man, is the one I have chosen and picked. There is none like him among all the people. And now for the first time in the whole passage, the word king is used from the people because this big tall farm boy that's been drug out of the baggage is held up before them and they say, long live the king. This is the one they've chosen. So, the text ends with this chapter with another reminder. And it's important that we see this. Because Samuel kind of brings all these people back into reality. And this is as much for Saul personally as it is for the people, but it's to remind the people, God has made a choice. This is the prince who will serve over you but this is the way he is to do it. And I believe that's what this verse is saying. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. That is exactly what we saw last week from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Except Deuteronomy 17 said, the king shall write them for himself. But Samuel does that for Saul. And he lays it before the Lord, meaning he laid it out before God and before all the people saying, this is the man you've chosen But this is the way he is to do it. And he will fail. He will fail. But God's purposes will still stand. Just to remind the people and to remind us that God is still in control and all are still to respond and obey God's people, God's prophet, God's word, Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So even in the midst of this reminder of authority, what a great gift God gives Saul here as as their support. God touches the hearts of some men to come around Saul, and they're going to be there for him and with him. They're going to support him, but there is also opposition. In Baptist circles, this is that meeting in the parking lot after the meeting. Huh? Some of us have been around long enough to know about those meetings, right? We make a decision in the room, but then these yahoos go outside, and they talk about it in the parking lot. And that's what happens here. Who does this farm boy think he is? They are worthless fellows. They are sons of Belial. Sons of of the enemy, if you will. How can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present. Reminds me of Matthew chapter 13. Where some people came to Jesus and said, Is this not Joseph's son? And they took offense at him. How can this man save us? Hmm. Interesting. Even though Saul's not going to be the kind of king Deuteronomy 17 says, he's not going to measure up to God's standards. By the way, neither will David. And neither will any of their sons that come after them until Jesus. Let me give you four quick points of application here. Okay? First, Thank you for giving us our first point of application in your testimony. Did you hear it? I'm not going to be my own king. Jesus is my king. Is he? Do not be among the sons of Belial, the worthless fellows who look at Jesus Maybe through cultural eyes, maybe through academic eyes, maybe through philosophical eyes, maybe through some other lens and reject him as king. He came, he lived perfectly just as God required. He died and paid the blood sacrifice for sin just as God required God affirmed that with the resurrection and he's ascended to the right hand of God and one day will return as king and nobody will miss it next time. Don't be one of the worthless who miss it. Trust in him. Trust in his work in your life. This is an amazing account of God's redemptive story and how little pieces of it begin falling into place in the most mundane aspects of your lives. How is it that you ended up where you're hearing this? That's a work of God. Come in faith and trust in King Jesus and let that work be completed. Number two, the providential, merciful hand of God is at work even in things like looking after the lost donkeys. There is nothing insignificant in your life as God sovereignly works and moves his purposes. Do you understand that? Nothing is insignificant. Thirdly, related to that is that how you respond to those mundane, insignificant things may not be insignificant. It may matter greatly. Because in those little mundane things, cracks in the door come open and character flows out. So there are no little insignificant things that are just not a big deal. All things reflect something more. And so even in these mundane, seemingly insignificant matters of our daily lives, don't underestimate the consequences of our decisions. Seek to honor God with every one of them, okay? And then finally this, and I just thought about this late this morning. Actually sitting in my office kind of working through this again and reading through it. And I thought, guys, let's don't be like Saul and run from your calling, I believe with all my heart, God has called some of you to some place of ministry or service. It might be a life changing call. It might be to start classes at Southeastern, pursue that call toward missions. It might be pursuing that degree and maybe God's going to use it in some way. Or it may be something like simply stepping up in women's ministry or men's ministry, stepping up as a life group leader. It may be stepping up. Don't run from that call. Don't hide from it. You are missing out on the flourishing and the equipping and the blessing of God that will come through no other means other than you being obedient, stepping up and saying yes. And this text reminds us, all these pictures here remind us that God's grace is sufficient. His Spirit has been given to you, and guess what? What happened to Saul later on when the Spirit left him will never happen to that blood-bought child of God. It'll never happen. So the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is yours to do what God has called you and equipped you to do. Say yes. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. If you need help having to pray through it and figure it out, come and see one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these two chapters. Thank you for this picture of how you work to accomplish your eternal purposes even in things that may not be a big deal at least in our eyes. Father, we thank you that you have called and chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. In love, God, you've predestined us for adoption as your sons and daughters. Thank you for that, for reminding us of that through the baptism, through the communion, and through your word. Father, help us to be faithful, to walk by faith and not by sight. And to be obedient in the call that you've given us. And God, I pray for that person who today needs to return from their sin and trust in Jesus as their king. I pray, God, for you to do that work. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.